You're listening to WNHHLP, 103.5 FM New Haven, streaming live at www.newhavenindependent.org and broadcasting live from our offices on Elm Street. This is an episode of All of Us with Greg Grinberg. Hey, everybody. This is All of Us on WNHH. We're broadcasting live at 103.5 FM. My guest today is State Senator Gary Holder Winfield. Uh, he's uh, been recently reelected to a third term at the State Senate. And we're here to talk about what we can do in Connecticut over the next four years to be a model for other states, as we will be one of the few remaining blue-ish states uh, <laughs> of, of, of the entire country. Um, last time on the show, we had, uh, we had Steve Pincus, uh, author of The Heart of the Declaration. Uh, the upshot of that conversation was that a crisis is a terrible thing to waste. So on that note, Gary, I'd like to start with, uh, in my view, the role of government is to empower every single person to reach their full potential. I'd like to sort of in that vein, um, uh, uh, you know, hear from you. What, you know, how do you see the role of government? Let, let's start there. Well, thank you for having me. Good morning. Um, I see government as similar to what you're saying, right? I see it as, um, performing a role which is uh, in some ways sometimes seen as interventionist, right? Government where uh, we as individuals fail, government um, can help us to uh, move forward, continue uh, to do the things that we want to do. You know, we give up, one of the concepts in government is the uh, giving up of your own sovereignty uh, in return for something. And the question Mm -hmm. is, what is that thing uh, that you're um, being, that's being returned to you? Um, and I think it's uh, protection uh, in multiple forms. So uh, it's protection when uh, one may fail to uh, be able to uh, achieve all of the things that we want to achieve. So that's why here in Connecticut, we talk often about the social safety net uh, is protection um, in terms of physical safety, which is why uh, police are a governmental agency. Um, and so I think government has to be uh, a thing where uh, the government is doing something for people. It's not just there uh, to be as small as possible. It's not there to be uh, something the size that as some people might say could be drowned in a bathtub. It's there to do something. And that thing is to um, provide uh, for the people uh, that have given up the sovereignty to government. Indeed. I mean, it's a, it's a social contract, right? Absolutely. And, you know, it's interesting that in our discussion last week, one of the topics that we covered is that the founders, the, the authors of the Declaration of Independence actually viewed government very much the same way, that they were not um, necessarily for small government at all, that they believe that government, they believe exactly as you're saying, that government exists to serve the interests of the people and, and ultimately to make people happier than they would be in the state of nature. Yeah, I think, I, I'm sorry to cut you off, but I think that there's this strange thing, at least to me, where uh, there are people who are trying to get into government who don't like government. I, I, I honestly think if you don't like government, then maybe you should stay away from government and not try to kill it off. Indeed. Indeed. Absolutely. Uh, that, that concept seems counterintuitive. I don't like government, so I'm going to get into government to kill it off. Right? I, I, there are lots of things that I don't like, but I understand the importance of them. And so it's just not my thing. Absolutely. I mean, it's one thing to say that you don't like certain things that the government is doing. I mean, you know, I mean, I can point to all kinds of of criminal justice reforms, for example, that I think are are absolutely necessary. And at the same time, it's not that I think that we shouldn't have a government. I think that we should 
that our government should be doing different things. Right, and I think a lot of this comes from um, perspectives that are based on uh, ourselves as individuals. We're, we're, we're individuals, but we're also part of a collective, right? We talk about the nation. The nation does not indicate to me that we're talking about an individual. And, and so when in the context of government, when you start talking about things as an individual, I think you're going down the wrong path. Absolutely. I mean, it seems to me that there are these two kind of you know, very much opposing views that 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 fundamentally characterize how one sees government. You know, in, in one view, you believe that there are that there are good people and bad people, and that it's the government's job to sort of weed out the bad people so that the good people can just, you know, go through life unfettered, you know. And then there's the other view that says that that most people, that almost everyone, you know, if not every single person, you know, is a person of infinite inherent value, uh, and that we can work with one another to help each other achieve our full potential. Yeah. And, you know, and when you sort of look at it through the other lens, uh, you know, the things that you see going on, like, for example, in Ferguson, the, you know, the, and, you know, what this pattern of policing as a form of victimizing communities, uh, as, as, you know, in, in, a, in a very predatory way to try to raise funds uh, for the government, it, it, it becomes, it, you know, through that lens, that looks absolutely insane. It's like it's like cutting off your right hand to make your left hand feel better about itself. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things that um, is important to this this discussion and I think every discussion is the ability to um, see things through a perspective that you don't have. Right. And this is this was important in uh, the election that just passed. It's important when we talk about criminal justice in this country uh, and particularly those who I think we all need to be able to see the other perspective, but particularly those who have the power or those who are in the majority need to be able to understand the perspective of those who are uh, without power or powerless and uh, those who aren't in the majority, because the realities for those, uh, those two groups is not the same thing. Uh, and oftentimes it is easy for those with power or who are in the majority to simply say to the other group, what you feel doesn't actually happen because they would never experience those things. Absolutely. Um, and so we have we have what what I think of as a, a schism that uh, exists and grows and hardens. Um, and then you have uh, responses to that schism that to the majority seem to make no sense. But if you are on the other side of the equation, it would make perfect sense. Um, and if we're going to have a country where, uh, yes, there are differences in who we are, where we live and how we experience things. But we understand each other and find a solution that works for the majority of us. We have to be able to, to, to understand across experiences. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, we've just you know, seen the election of an administration. You know, it, putatively, we're going to see an administration over the next four years that is very much uh, not on the wavelength that, that you know, that, that you're. Yeah, it's not on my wavelength. Yeah, certainly not. And. <laughs> And so it's the Goldman Sachs administration. It, indeed. I mean, and it's the administration of, you know, uh, you know, of victimizing groups that have already been victimized over the years. And uh, and, and certainly it's it's not um, it's not about empowering people to reach their full potential. Yeah, uh, uh, again, you let me know if I'm cutting you off. But I think I think that may be true. But I think what um, even if that's not true, if, if the administration is not about the victimization of those groups, the administration certainly seems to be an administration that foments the invisibility of those groups in conversation about where we go. Right. So I think that is um, particularly dangerous, right? You can have people who have no ill intent, but uh, allow for the invisibility to continue. 
And that is dangerous to communities because uh, policy reflects that invisibility. Um, and when policy reflects that invisibility, those communities cannot flourish based on anything that has to do with policy. And everything has to do with policy. So um, my problem with the Trump administration, let's say Trump is actually a good technical president, right, is those communities will still be invisible and so therefore left behind. And so that that kind of benign neglect that exists mm. is still very dangerous. Absolutely. It's not so benign. It's not. But yeah, there's no ill intent, but you still are very dangerous. Right. Uh, you know, if, if you ever read the book, The Invisible Man, mm. in the beginning of the book, there's a conversation about uh, the invisible man walking down the street and the white individual bumping into him because he doesn't see him mm -hmm. and being startled by the fact that he bumped into something. It's, it's a metaphor for what goes on in this country. Um, and I think. The, the whole book is an important book to read. But if you read the first five pages of that book and you dissect it and understand it, I think you'll understand some of what we see in this country even today. Absolutely. And it's not, I mean, the the invisibility of these groups is not, this is not uh, a, a hypothetical problem in that we're, we're not starting from a good position here. Right. And, and we, you know, so when we're, when we're, when we're looking ac across the country and we're seeing um, police violence against black people and, you know, targeting low income communities, essentially criminalizing existence, you know, where you see, you know, in places like Ferguson, where a person can have, you know, 82 citations um, and ultimately go on to be killed by police during a routine traffic stop. Um, you know, and I, and I, and I do mean routine when it, when it becomes 82 citations, <laughs> Um, and then, you know, and, and we look at, you know, it, it's easy, it's easy to feel better about ourselves in Connecticut when we look at Ferguson and we compare ourselves, you know, from a relative standpoint, it's easy to feel good about ourselves. And yet at the same time, that's not the standard that we want to be measuring ourselves by. And we have our own problems here. Uh, so what I'd love to talk about with you is what do we do over the next two years, over the next four years to really make sure that we get it right here in Connecticut, that make, make sure our own plate is clean. Um, and set an example for the rest of the country as one of the few blue states remaining? Uh, that's, I think that's a tough question and a very important question. I think um, to backtrack a little bit and then to come forward to your specific question, uh, we feel good about ourselves because we believe in the fictive boundaries that are the state, right? Like mm. you, you step over this line, you're in another state, and so that's their problem. Mm. Uh, but I think those boundaries aren't, actual walls that are 300 feet tall P people and problems bleed back and forth across boundaries one city is not as distinct from another city as we sometimes believe they are one neighborhood Absolutely. is not as distinct from another neighborhood as we sometimes believe they are and when there are problems in one place that is connected to us and everything is connect connected to us those problems at some point will probably become our problems if we don't uh, see that they're important, right? So, for instance, right, uh, you can have a you can have a, a war on drugs in this country. That hey, that's their problem. We don't have to worry about it. But twenty, thirty years later, you have problems in uh, a lot of our communities uh, that we could have begun to deal with earlier. Um, you have prisons that uh, exist in our community, that exist in our state and in our communities Absolutely. that have something to do with the issues we have in the budget. Uh, you've you've had this neglect of communities that have something to do with why schools don't work. And in the state of Connecticut, for instance, when you've begun to become less of a white state, it becomes an economic issue. Right. But if you if, if we didn't look at, well, that's that other community. So we don't have to worry about it. 30, 40 years ago, you wouldn't have that play into the economy today. If half of your workforce between 25 and 29 in the next 10 years or so is going to be black and brown and you've done 
uh, you've not done what you need to do for them in terms of uh, education, that becomes an economic issue for all of us, Absolutely. those who used to be in the majority. So I think it's important to understand that those fictive boundaries are actually fictive. They are not real. Oh, yeah. Just look at a map of how fast the flu spreads, you know, every every winter. And, you know, and, and you re- and you realize that, that right. you know, and you and I mean, but but clearly, I mean, it, that's that's true. That's true far more deeply than 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 right. than most of us appreciate. Most and it's of the true time. across the country. Mm-hmm. And so and so the issues in a uh, Ferguson or uh, Florida or wherever one of these issues has popped up is not an issue of Ferguson. It's not an issue of Florida. It's not an issue of whatever other place it's an issue that we are connected to before we know we're connected to it. And so here's part of the problem. I think we are often concerned with fighting injustice and not concerned with fighting for justice. Right. Mm. So in the state of Connecticut, we're like, is there some injustice I have to fight against? If not, I'm good. Right. Right. That doesn't mean that you've done what I see is the, the better way of doing things, which is to look to, to become part of the fight for justice. So if it's, if it's, if, if I'm looking at the state of Connecticut, what I'm doing is I'm taking an actual assessment of what we're doing, right? We just, we just very recently have been having a fight since 2012, it's wrapped up again, about racial profiling in the state of Connecticut. Yes. Right? We wouldn't be having that fight if we didn't have racial profiling in the state of Connecticut. We, we've had issues about what police in uh, many communities have done, including our own community. Indeed. Yeah, right. I was I was actually just invited to uh, to to stand with someone at a hearing yesterday after she alleges that police uh, essentially pulled her out of her car and beat her up. After and there's she... video of it. Yeah, it's, it's not like it's just an allegation. And yet, those police officers with an internal investigation have been cleared. Right. Right. So, and that's not unexpected. Right. I, I, to be honest with you, I grew up as a as a, a black person in this country. Uh, I love America. I actually served in the military. I serve today. I've served my entire adult life in some capacity. But it doesn't mean that I don't recognize that there are problems with America and there are problems with the state of Connecticut. And many of those problems have something to do with some things that we don't want to talk about race and where you stand economically. And in terms of race, you could have something that that would incite the people to say this can't happen if it happened to one population. Right. But when it happens to the other population, it's like, well, they should have done this or they should have done that. Or there's some reason there are things that should never happen. Absolutely. When, when you are wearing the uniform of state, which police officers do, right? You represent the government. Absolutely. When you are wearing a uniform of state, your level of respect for human beings should be the same, whether you're in a poor community or a rich community, a white community or a black community. And if it's not, you are fundamentally not qualified to wear the uniform of state. Absolutely, and it and it should be it, your respect for the value of the fellow human beings should be the highest of anyone that when you're wearing that uniform. Right. Can can I say for a second? You know, in New Haven, we have prided ourselves on the fact that we have community policing. I'm actually baffled by this. Yes. Because you can go to some communities and have no community policing, and you would never have the issues. In, in terms of interaction between the police and community that you would have in black and brown communities. Right. Right. And, and, and there's a reason for that. It's not that the police uh, are, you know, any different. You can take the same police officer and have different interactions. Right. That's, that's how policing should be. It should be, if I go into one community and I can respect people, yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. How are you doing? Nice day. All of that. I should be able to go into other community and do that. 
But in some communities, you have to have community policing. So here's what here's why those communities actually kind of like community policing. And you may have heard me say this before, because it's better than broken windows theory policing. Right. It's better than I don't have an actual official term for it, but bust you upside the head policing. It's much better than that. So I like community policing. It doesn't mean that I feel as though my community should be policed in that way. If given the option of having the other type of policing, which is when you come into the community and there's a problem, you're actually respectful. If I called you, Mm. I'm not the one who winds up on the ground, right? That happens in communities. So I don't understand why the goal is community policing. I can understand how it's a step, but I don't understand why the goal is community policing when the goal should be policing of a different sort policing that actually respects people and that's hard for people to grasp but i'm not a fan of community policing i'm a fan of police respecting the people who are there and i'm a fan of the people respecting the police but one is connected to the other absolutely absolutely i mean and I, and I say this as a as a white person when i when i look at what's going on and i say this as the and i and i don't say this lightly i say this as the grandson of two holocaust survivors when i see what's going on here i see nuremberg level stuff happening and i and i and i see the need for um you know for for a dramatic inquisition into um into into the the systems that have been that have allowed to to develop and to the individual actors you know that we need to be asking very hard questions of our police and our judges and our district attorneys you know our our prosecutors i mean i I, i've I've witnessed interactions in the court we sit that we sit a few blocks from that really make it look um like a sham and that's why you have communities that feel it's a sham, that no matter what what has actually transpired, no matter whether they're innocent or guilty, it doesn't matter. You can't get justice. And if there are any of us in our society who know or are reasonably assured that they cannot get justice, then we don't have a system of justice. You can't have a system of justice if justice only applies to some of the people. That's something other than a system of justice. And, if, and of course, for the people who can get justice out of the system, they believe it's a system of justice. But even for them, it's not a just system. Right. And, and so this is, again, back to the point, you, you cannot look at these things in an individualistic way because that means you don't understand the thing at which you're looking because it's about society, which is broader than the, than the individual. Absolutely. So on this particular topic, I mean, where do we go from here? I mean, do we have mandatory civilian review boards with subpoena power throughout the state? Uh, you know, how do we, you know, do we, I mean, how do we, how do we, um, how do we enable communities to, uh, you know, to, to, to borrow a campaign slogan? I mean, how do, how do we enable communities to take control of their policing so that policing is not in control of the community? Yeah. So I, I, I think that we have to begin to, so there have been conversations since the election about what does this mean? Where are we going? And a lot of it hasn't really yielded much real deep conversation. It's right. a lot of it's been about the feelings of people. And I think, I think feelings are important, but I think with those, those conversations are a great beginning point to not only response to uh, the advent of a Donald Trump and his administration, but some other things like what are we doing in this state, in the state of Connecticut? So, Oftentimes, you'll have individuals who have a prescription for how uh, the state should be moving forward. Uh, That's never going to, let me not say never, because anything is possible, but that is not what is going to yield uh, a change, right? The change is going to come from pressure on uh, those of us who occupy elected office to move forward in a certain way. So 
some of the things we've seen nationally and some things in Connecticut that we try not to say happened uh, resulted uh, in 2015 in a bill about police accountability, uh, body cameras, uh, if police had uh, acted against the population in certain ways, uh, aggressive ways, uh, that they couldn't be hired in, in, in certain police, uh, poli- in the police force in Connecticut, and that the police force would actually have to tell anyone else who was trying to hire them what had happened, right? So mm-hmm. this, this makes police more accountable. Does it fix everything? No. But the reason that happened was because it was pressure on the system from people who were tired of what we've seen in this country. I think that if we're going to move forward, one, we've got to do uh, the, the shift from uh, focusing on injustice to focusing on justice. So if there's not a problem right now, that doesn't mean there's not a fight. There's not a push, right? right. And so in these, commu- in these conversations that are still taking place, we've got to move from I feel to here is what we as a community have discussed. Here's what we need. Elected officials, we put you in place. We need you to do one of very few things. We need you to respond by pushing for this thing. We need you to respond by telling us why you can't currently do it and how we can get there. We need you to respond by explaining to us why what we think is the answer can't be the answer. We need you to engage with us as community so we can figure out how those things that we've actually sat down as community and and felt as though are important to our moving forward and their and thereby the nation by extension uh, 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 work or don't work in how we get to where we're going, or we need you to go away. Mm. That's, that's what I think. So I think we've got to be about the business of saying justice means this for everybody. And if it doesn't exist in a place, I'm concerned enough to engage in that conversation and therefore, and, and be, and after that, and the actions that stem from that conversation. Absolutely. So what is the best way for uh, for citizens, citizens concerned particularly about this issue to put pressure on the on our elected officials? I mean, I'm reminded of of Nixon saying to the leaders of the civil rights movement. I'm, I'm sorry, not Nixon, of course. To, to, I'm reminded of LBJ uh, saying to the leaders of the civil rights movement. Yeah, this is great. I want to do this. I want to pass this legislation. Now I need you to make me do it mm-hmm. politically. How do we do that? How do we make this happen? I mean, how do you know, how do we, you know, how do we put, you know, pressure on the governor, for example, to call a special session, you know, in, you know, to, to react to the, the election of Donald Trump as the emergency that it is and, uh, and start to push through uh, important legislation at the state level that, um, that, that, for example, creates civilian review boards with subpoena power. I mean, how do we, how do we actually uh, put pressure on, um, on, on elected officials, as you, as you say, in, in, in a way that is effective? So, so first, I think um, if you're really concerned about getting to justice, you have to recognize that um, this is not something that's going to happen in a session, right? And I, and I think, I think many of us uh, feel as though things should have happened a long time ago, and so I'm engaged in a battle now, and it didn't happen in this session or the next session, so I'm disengaged because nothing's going to work, right? Or, or conversely, that this thing should have happened a long time ago, so it should happen right now immediately, right. and there should, you know, and and there should right. be no delay, and there's that there's that expectation, which I feel is legitimate. It's legitimate, but it's not how it works, in, right? So, right. So. I've been an activist for 23 years, right? Right. (laughs) This is not a very quick fight. Uh, You know, you could talk about the civil rights fight in terms of the 1950s and 60s, but we all know that that fight started long before that. You could talk about the fight for the rights of women 
in terms of the 1920s and that era, but we know that that started long before that and it still continues, right? So none of this stuff is immediate. So I think the first thing we have to do is have have leaders of these movements who are able to say to people, because sometimes leaders do a bad job of leading, right? And they the way they operate indicates to people that it's possible that you get an idea, you tell somebody the idea, and it changes next week. It's not happening. Uh, so we've got to uh, manage expectations for the people who are involved. And then we've got to, so this is where the engagement part comes. Uh, if I have people who are contacting me in my district, uh, I am a fool if I am ignoring them, particularly when they can demonstrate to me that they are connected to other people. Mm. Because on election day, that usually results in consequences that I don't want to have. Right. Right. So I think oftentimes you will have somebody who's concerned about something uh, and they've made an effort to contact a state rep, state senator, or the governor, they didn't get a response and they're done and they're pissed off and they're talking. But here's what happens, right? I get, so for, I'm going to talk about my circumstances. Uh, I give out my cell phone number to everybody, which is from some people's perspective, foolish. I tell people, listen, you want to get me, use the cell phone, call me, don't leave a message. Because if you leave a message, there are many of them in a day, sometimes upwards of 80 or 90 messages. I'm not getting through those messages text message me, right? Right. Oftentimes people don't listen to this. We will tell you the best way to get in touch with us if you have engaged with us. Pay attention to what we're telling you because then if if you text message me and you never hear from me, then I've lied to you, mm-hmm. right? We're going to tell you what's the best way to get in touch with us. And let's say you can't get in touch with me. Most of us walk around with a very powerful computer in our pocket the computer process, the, the power of the computer that's in our pocket has more power than the computer that put people on the moon when we first put people on the moon. Absolutely. And it has a very simple tool that you can get to on all of these called Google. If you Google Gary Winfield, state senator, you would find a phone number to my office. And when you call my office, there's somebody who sits there waiting for people to call. And you can engage with that person to get to me and then bring me in front of those people that you have. Force me to have the discussion with them. A lot of people don't do that. They talk to each other, but they don't ever engage with us. Force us to have to answer questions. That's that's part of the job. And and once you've gotten us to answer questions and talked about what you want, you'll find out how we how we are going to respond to it. And then you can you can decide whether this is an ally or an enemy. And there's two different responses to allies and enemies. With allies, you say to an ally, "Well, how can I help you to do the thing you say that you're willing to help us do?" Mm-hmm. With the enemy. You say to that enemy, I understand who you are and you have to understand my community is important to me. And so therefore we organize in such a way that we get an ally in your spot. That's pressure because I don't want you to get someone else to be your ally. I want to be your ally. Right. Absolutely. So setting aside setting aside political realities for just a minute and sort of thinking about a a longer term, bigger vision um, and, you know, sort of with with what you said about this not happening in a session in mind, in your view, what do you, what do you want to see happen as a legislator? What, you know, in your, in your vision, assuming, you know, that's assuming that, that your colleagues would be, would be magically on board, uh, given <laughs> sufficient time, uh, <laughs> given sufficient time, I think is an extremely important point, but, but right. given sufficient time, assuming your colleagues would be on board with what you want to see happen, what, what would you want to see happen? I'd want to see more of what, uh, what some of us have been trying to do. So we've been trying to look at the systems that are in place. Um, what 
initially where justice is supposed to be doled out, right? So the prison system, uh, the system of juvenile justice, uh, the system that uh, deals with the social services uh, for people in the state and figure out whether they work, if they need to be reformed uh, and, and moving towards the types of reforms that um, we learn are important. Uh, oftentimes, at least at Connecticut state capital, uh, if you figure that there's a reform that needs to be done, even if you can justify uh, that reform and explain why it's important, you can't get movement right now. So I would love for my colleagues to um, get in a mind frame where um, we talk about people, where it becomes about people and not about politics. Um, politics are always going to be uh, have a role, but people are important and people come first. And what we're actually doing there with our politics is 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 making the policy. So we've reformed the juvenile justice uh, system in the state of Connecticut. It's not perfect, but we've reformed. It's nothing like it used to be. Uh, you know, young people don't go to jail for the same reasons they used to go to jail for. Uh, you don't have the same level of disparity in terms of if a, if a young person is out in the middle of the night and they get picked up, they go to uh, juvie in the same way because we've said, listen— you know, in certain communities, you take them home. In other communities, you right. take them to juvie, right? We said, if you want to do that, you have to go and wake up a judge to get the judge to allow. Police officers don't want to do that, right? So so if we were focused on what is this system supposed to look like and what does it look like now and how do we get it closer, then I think we would have a better system of justice for all. And so that's where my focus is. Um, so, uh, yeah, I'll leave it there. Absolutely. We have... You know, I mean, to sort of to, to explore one particular facet of that, we have people um, in in Connecticut incarcerated for nonviolent offenses. Yep. And fundamentally, I mean, to me, I know that there are a lot of issues in government that are nuanced. That doesn't strike me as one of them. That strikes me as that strikes me as crazy. I'm wondering what what is it going to take to get us to a point where we no longer do that? So I think. If you if you pay attention to what we do at the state level, we've been having a conversation for a very long time about this very issue and about whether we need to incarcerate people who uh, have have committed crimes, but they're they're nonviolent crimes and whether all nonviolent nonviolent crimes are the same. They're not. Right. So maybe some of those people do need to be incarcerated. Maybe some of them need to be in, not incarcerated for a long time before a short period. We, we could do better than we're doing. Uh, what needs to happen to to, to get there is there needs not to be uh, a political benefit for incarcerating people, which there still is, right? There's still a political benefit to being able to say I'm tough on crime without explaining what that means and explaining whether or not your tough on crime is the same as smart on crime. Right. Uh, there's a political benefit to having jails. There are jobs connected to having jails. Um, there's not only jobs uh, when people, let's for instance, talk about somebody who leaves New Haven. When somebody leaves New Haven, and let's say they go to, I don't know, Enfield, right, in a prison in Enfield, there is not only the the economic uh, uh, benefit of having them there because there's a prison where there's a job, but there's also benefit because it changes the electoral map, right? And, wow. it, it, and it creates political power in places where that political power should not be. So you've removed some of the political power from the community where people are moved from and placed it in a community where you don't actually have people who ever participate in that community. So, I mean, we've got to deal with these things. So one of the things that some of us have been trying to do uh, is deal with uh, prison-based gerrymandering. Because when you deal with prison-based gerrymandering, you deal with some of that political problem. Uh, but there's not a groundswell, even amongst those 
who would say, you know, I'm, I'm all about justice. I'm a, I live in New Haven. I think we need to do something about prisons when it comes to prison-based ger- gerrymandering because we don't think about the interconnection of a lot of these issues. Absolutely. I mean, it, and just I'm sort of sitting here listening to this and kind of reacting to the the idea that um, that anyone would uh, would advocate for and in their official capacity as an elected official um, help to enact policies that deprive other human beings of their freedom because there's a political upside is just such a sickening idea, um, you know, and it, again, it comes, you know, it sort of comes back to, you know, it, again, I mean, it triggers thoughts about Nuremberg for me and, and, you know, and the standards that, you know, that, that we, that we hold our elected officials to. But you've got to understand it's not, so, so we look at, again, even in politics, in terms of, the, of these questions, we think of the individual politician and uh, their moral character, but this is not actually about them because you remove that individual and you replace them and you'll probably get the same result for a reason. Mm. The, the people who surround that person who put them in office, that's what they want. They want that prison to be there. I mean, like if I don't have any other uh, source of an economy, that thing becomes important to me. Right. Like if you remove that, where do I work? What does my cousin work? Mm. What happens to my family? And so this is why we've got to do some imagining that is beyond a particular issue. A lot of this stuff is interconnected. You take communities where you have prisons and the removal of that prison takes me from a middle working class person to a lower working class person who can't survive. Right. 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 And so, and so we've tied a lot to this system. There's a reason why uh, when slavery was over, we figured out how to reinstitute slavery without calling it slavery. <laughs> we right. had black codes and other things, right? Because there's an economic impetus for this, this, this stuff that we call bad behavior. And we didn't figure out, well, once you remove the system, which is bad, what do you do so that people have no economic impetus to do the same thing? Absolutely. So you talked about uh, removing sort of the, the, um, uh, the electoral incentive um, to, uh, you, you know, as one example, um, you know, the, the, uh, the, the uh, using um, incarceration as a form of gerrymandering, um, essentially. Uh, what other what other systemic reforms do you see on the horizon that could that could lead to deeper change? <laughs> well, on the horizon, right away, I see a, a problem that is where the fight is in the in terms of the budget. To be honest, with you. Um, because the, the the budget in the state of Connecticut, I think, is going to cloud everything. But that's a fight for justice as well. Yes, right. Uh, what you pay for talks about what you believe. Uh, what you cut in tough times speaks to what you believe. Now there are some some pressures that force you to make cuts that you don't want to make, right? Of course. But how you fight and how you struggle says something about what the state of Connecticut believes. So I think the immediate fight right now is what are we going to do about the state's budget, right? And so let me let me be very clear about what it means to, what, what, what tools you have in budgeting. You have two broad tools, the tool of reducing the budget in some way and the tool of expanding revenues into the budget in some way, Right. Now, a lot of the expansion is going to take the form of a tax or a fee. Uh, And as soon as you say that, people go, taxes, we need to cut. Well, if you look at uh, the time since I've been in the state capitol, what we've been doing is cutting. And those cuts are largely in the areas of social services and other things that people need, particularly because the the portion of the budget that is uh, the portion you can't touch has grown uh, and it continues to grow. You have about 57% of the budget you can't touch, Right. So on a $19, $20 billion uh, budget, what you're saying effectively is the budget that the, the, the legislature deals with is really about $9 billion, eight and a half to $9 billion. 
And if you if you've been reading the papers, you know we've got to cut 1.5 billion dollars out of the budget. So you basically have to cut about 20% of the budget after you just cut a huge portion of the budget, right? We cut the budget in such a way that care for kids and other things that are, uh, I think, related to justice, related to uh, people's ability to, to be able to leave the house and go work, people's ability to do some of the things that allow them to live and live not the, not the grandest life, but a life where it's a life that you can feel fulfilled because you put your kids in school and you did certain things and you did the... The, the, the natural things that humans want and need to be able to do, we've cut it in such a way that those things currently don't work. So if you're saying you're going to do that and that's where you start now to take an additional 20% and we should just keep cutting, I have a fundamental problem with that. Absolutely. But, the, but, the pro, but part of the problem is there are a lot of people who are elected who have a problem with that who won't say it because people don't want to talk about the revenue part of the budget. Right. Because, well, why should I? Why should I? But I've, I've known people who, who, who have said, why should I, until those cuts actually affected them. And then they're like, what are you going to do about it? Well, here's the reality. If I'm being pushed to cut, 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 eventually, if you need any help at all, you're going to get caught up in that. Right. And so we have, a, we have a question. Who do we want to be as a state? Do we want to be a state that says it's important to us to do these things? Or do we want to be a state that doesn't? And by the way, we have, we've heard people say in other places they don't do this. In places like Texas and Kansas and Oklahoma and those places, they've cut. Well, look at what's happened with those states now. Texas can't fund its schools. Oklahoma has gone to four-day schools. Wow. Because, because so, so there, are, there are consequences for the actions we take. And now the people who are there who thought those were great ideas, and, and let's not even talk about Kansas, <laughs> people who are there who have thought that those are great ideas are like, what about us? What about justice for us? Right? Justice doesn't begin and end at my front door. And so exactly. when I don't care about or I don't see the value of making sure that I'm fighting for justice for others, when it's only about injustice, if an injustice is done to me, eventually it will come back around and get me. Absolutely. And we're going to be taking calls in a few minutes with Senator Winfield at 203-872-7356. That's 203-872-7356. So, you know, as a taxpayer, um, you know, when I think about, um, you know, paying taxes and I, when I think about myself in particular, also as a future taxpayer, you know, I, I, I you know, I, the American dream is a very pervasive idea, if not a true idea. And it's very easy to imagine oneself in the future being super successful financially and being in a position where one would have to pay lots and lots of taxes. You know, even when I think of that, what I think, you know, what, what I would want out of my taxes is that I'd want to be, I want to be getting something for my money. Absolutely. It's not that I would mind writing a big check to the government every year. I would just hope that that money is one collected in an efficient way that makes some sense and two, spent in, in, in a way that is efficient, meaning that I'm getting a lot for that money. I mean, I want to see if a friend of mine needs mental health services and can't afford to pay for them, I would hope that that friend of mine would be able to, to get those mental services rather than, uh, rather than, than, than suffering uh, and you know, suffering not just as an individual, but you know, with their family suffering with them, for example. Um, and that's a that's an issue that's that's touched me personally that I've you know, I've I've, I've had friends who have been in that position. Um, so so to me, it's it's not so much about like I, it, 
the goal doesn't seem to be like minimizing the amount of money that in some hypothetical future I will be paying. It seems to me about what am I getting for that money? Is it being spent wisely and is it being collected wisely? So now you turn to this discussion of the budget, you know, and you and you and you said it on the revenue side, it's about taxes and it's about fees. And you hear sort of you know, enterprising public officials saying, oh, well, we can just raise fees in, you know, rather than raising taxes, we can we can monetize our parking, for example, as we've done here in New Haven, and we can make it go till nine and we can have, you know, paid parking on Saturdays. And, you know, but in order to do it, we have to spend half a million dollars on new parking meters. And so what really starts to get at me is, are we are we the fees are just another form of tax? Let's be honest with ourselves. Right. Are, is it an efficient way to tax people? You know, given that we already have, a, you know, a, an infrastructure in place uh, for, you know, for income-based taxing and for property value-based taxing uh, and for taxing gasoline, which is, in my mind, an excellent idea as someone who really cares about climate change, um, what, the, the, this, this idea that we can... Ta- that we can tax through fees doesn't seem to me so clever, and especially when you start talking about about um, things beyond parking tickets. When we start talking about speeding tickets and misdemeanors and civil forfeitures, now it sounds like it sounds a lot more like we're going to tax you. We're going to do it in an extremely inefficient way, fiscally. In other words, for every dollar that we take in, we've spent a big fraction of that dollar uh, on expenses to collect it. Yeah. We're going to do it at gunpoint in some cases. Um, and we're going to do it in a way that is regressive and predatory on our most vulnerable communities. Right. And it sounds like a really bad deal. So there's a lot there. Um, I don't think all fees are the same. I do. Listen, when we talk about taxes, you have to say, I think you actually have the same conversation about what is or what isn't regressive, right? You can, the different taxes you can put in place. And when you put in place certain taxes, like dealing with the sales tax, for instance, people will tell you that's a regressive tax. I think we have a lot of, I think we have a lot of conversation that's not nuanced enough. So um, I am somebody who wants to be careful about uh, building regressivity into the system that we have. Um, But I'll tell you a story very quickly. We were having a conversation one time about um, more cuts to the social safety net and the way that we were uh, going to deal with uh, not making these cuts to the social safety net. And one of the proposals had to do with increasing the sales tax like a quarter of a percent or something like that, uh, which is an increase and it would be regressive, uh, but it's not the same thing as chopping out uh, this service, right? right. And, so, and so, but oftentimes in a conversation, that's complete, that, what the alternatives actually are is completely lost in a conversation, particularly amongst progressives is we can't do that because it's regressive. And I, and I look at them and I've had this conversation, I look at them and go, yes, but if we don't do that thing, then the other thing we do is worse than regressive. Right. It's destructive in ways that that regressive tax isn't. And so I think, look, I'm not going to get into the particulars of the parking meters, but uh, I think that we have to have conversations that are deeper, which is why I think the public has to engage officials. We tend to run away, right? Oftentimes, if we come on a radio show, we want to know exactly what we're talking about because we don't want you going to certain places, right? Right. If and we, I really appreciate, by the way, that you didn't even ask me, you know, what we what we were talking about before agreeing to come on the show, which is which is such an it's a it's really refreshing. And I just want as a, on a personal level, I just want to thank you for that. I appreciate, but there's a reason for that because I actually believe that because I'm willing to say what I actually believe in ways that we don't always say it. That even when people disagree with me, 
they kind of have a sense of who they're dealing with. And so they're like, I, I don't agree with him, but I know who the guy is. I respect what he's saying because I understand why he's saying it. And we're not required to agree on everything else. When you when you can't engage with a politician and they say something you disagree with, it's a different story. So so to, to me, it's important to uh, just simply sometimes be in a position where you say, you know what, I don't know the answer. Because I'm a human being. If I if I knew the answer to everything, I I wouldn't be a state senator. <laughs> if, I, if I knew the answer to everything, uh, I think or, or I would be pretending, right? Which is what you don't really want. You don't want someone who's pretending. You want somebody who you know is thinking about people who's struggling with these things just like you are, but who's thoughtful. And that's what I'm trying to be. So look, I think that that the the public has to engage with us and force us into a conversation about taxes and. Uh, cutting of services and cutting of government because yes we need to do some of that but if you haven't engaged with us then the decisions we make as government aren't going to make as much sense absolutely and i really appreciate what you're saying too about nuance that you know simplistic ideas ideas that are too simple for the solution for the problems that they're trying to solve um end up they're easy to state. They end up kind of catching on quickly in the conversation, uh, in, you know, in, in the statewide conversation. And that's why you have Texas, Oklahoma and Kansas. Exactly. Right. And nuance is so important. And so I, and so I appreciate so appreciate you for saying that, uh, that, you know, it, it, and, and, you know, in particular, you know, like the nuance, for example, that, you know, a, a regressive tax on cigarettes is not the same thing as a regressive tax on food. And that's why we, right. of course, don't tax food here. Right. Right. So. Um, when I so I want to talk a little bit about a particular issue um, which is close to my heart when it comes to climate change and it also is central to the budget which is which is a meaningful carbon tax or carbon tax equivalent like raising the gasoline tax significantly mm-hmm. um, clearly there are <laughs> repercussions there um, and you know th- there are regressive implications I mean that yeah. you know people who yeah. rely on filling their car with gasoline to get to work and you know and absolutely need that and so you know as as much as I am deeply concerned that we are putting carbon into the atmosphere at a rate that is too quick for the environment to adapt to. Mm-hmm. Um, and what's going to happen is that we're going to be in a position where our human civilization will no longer be, as it is, will no longer be supported by the environment and the environment will be changing too quickly for us to be able to adapt to that. Yeah. So when people, you know, environmentalists often talk about, you know, saving the planet as a euphemism, but it's being real here. It's not about saving the planet. It's about us. This is a selfish interest. You know, I would like our civilization to continue to thrive, not, right. you know, end up in, in you know, in, in some sort of holding pattern for a couple of millennia while we regroup. Uh, I, I look at a carbon tax as an effective um, you know, it's certainly not, you know, a ne- you know, necessary but not sufficient uh, mm. thing um, to to get us where we need to be because it, it because a meaningful carbon tax would change behavior because people would look for alternative transportation options. Yet, I don't want this to victimize people who are already who have already been victimized by policies for, you know, for, for hundreds of years as as communities. So one so one thought that, you know, that 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 I know that that progressives have been talking about is a carbon tax that um, that would come along with essentially a rebate, um, an income based rebate uh, that would, you know, so, so the incentive would still be there. I mean, you get to keep your rebate regardless of, you know, whether you spent the money on gasoline or whether you spent it on a new bicycle. Um, I'm curious, I mean, in, you know, in Connecticut, I mean, how do how do we get something like that done? How do we become how do we how do we go from a blue state to a green state? You know, or a purple state as we as we might be for the next couple of years. So 
I think this is one of the tougher questions you could ask. Let me just say, I agree. I think probably the most important issue that we could talk about is the future of this planet. Because we don't have a future of the planet. All the rest of the stuff doesn't matter. Um, I think that your conversation about uh, the carbon tax in some form is particularly important because, yes, you, the government needs to do something to modify behavior. The problem really is, how does the st- as, you, as your question implies, how does the state of Connecticut move in that direction? I don't know. Right. I just told you we sometimes need to say, I don't know. I don't know. And I don't know because um, environmental issues, as important as they are to some of us, as as like they are my issue to most people in a day to day, it's a fringe issue. Right. And it's not a fringe issue. But in terms of the political issues we deal with, it's one of those that is pushed to the fringes. And so I, I don't know how the this is on the activists, actually. I don't know how the activists are going to move their issue to the forefront. But it's going to take some of the stuff that we're talking about. Nobody ever engages me. I mean, I'm on your side on this, but nobody ever engages me in the way that I'm talking about with criminal justice and other things on the environment. It's just not like I'm, I'm worried about the money in my pocket. I'm not thinking about the environment, even if it's important to me. And so I think there is very little political pressure to do what you would like to see done. And so there has to be an effort by those people who are green to not just be right, but to be effective in the political arena in ways that they haven't been. Absolutely. It's the difference between uh, something that's urgent and something that's important. Right. So uh, on that, on that, if uh, if you do care about the climate and it is not a fringe issue to you on Saturday, December 3rd, that's this Saturday uh, at 12 p.m. at the state capitol. There is a march for jobs, justice and a livable earth. It's being organized by 350CT.org. If you have questions about it, you can email the organizers at organizers at 350CT.org. Gary, thanks so much for being on the program with me today. Absolutely. Um, my guest today has been State Senator Gary Winfield. Uh, this is All of Us on WNHH, New Haven's independent radio station.